Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them in the New Testament to the Gospel of John and chapter number 18. John chapter 18, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can turn in that Bible to page number 88 in the back half, and you will find yourself at John chapter 18. In John 18, we have an interchange that is taking place between the Lord Jesus and Pilate. And in particular, I want you to notice this interchange beginning in verse 37. And this interchange that they have is very contemporary. In fact, it would easily fit into a coffee shop in our day. Or it might be an interchange that you would have with your neighbor over the back fence. And if you'll notice in the middle of part, or verse 37, Jesus says this, I am a king, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And in verse 38, Pilate says to him, what is truth? Men and women, we are involved in a cultural shift that is taking place in our culture today, and it has a very swift current involved with it. We began to look at that last week. We are in a shift from what is called modernism to postmodernism. Remember, the idea of modernism says that truth can be known. There is a true and a false and a right and a wrong, and modernism believed that truth is discovered through logical investigation. That's where the culture used to be but it's very rapidly shifting away from that to postmodernism, where we saw in postmodernism it says that truth cannot be known with certainty and that truth is individually determined. Postmodernism breeds relativism and subjectivism, where truth is a matter of taste and a matter of preference. And the church of Jesus Christ is in danger today of being swept along by that current. Last week, we began a two-message series we entitled Emerging Error. And if you were not here last week, you must get that message because we're going to build on the foundation that we laid. And that message is available on our website at wildwoodchurch.org. It's also available uh, out in um, our bookstore here. But you need to get a hold of last week's message. Don't, don't avoid getting that if you're here this week for the first time. We began to talk about the emerging church movement in our day, and we said that there are a lot of strengths with the emerging church movement. They stress that they want to be the church, not just go to church, and that's what we all ought to believe. And they really have a strong strength in truly serving others, especially those who are struggling. And we pointed out last time that the emerging church movement is an informal association. There's, it's on a spectrum. There's a lot of diversity inside the emerging church movement. And not everything in the movement 
and not everyone in the movement is involved in error. I want to be very clear that people understand that. But I do have some concerns about some of the themes and some of the values and some of the viewpoints that have come out of portions of the emerging church movement. And if you remember last week, we looked at core concern number one that I have. There are actually two core concerns that I have, but the first one is the dilution of divine truth. And we talked last week about how there is the downplaying of doctrine. Doctrine has become an unhip, actually almost a dirty word in some Christian circles. And we pointed out that all doctrine means is what is taught. That's all it is. And I want you to turn with me in the New Testament to 2 Timothy, to the right quite a bit in your, in your Bible, to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. I want to look at what I think is a very important verse. This is a call that we are given as a church and as individual believers and certainly as church leaders. But notice it says in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. How do we do that? As a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and here comes the key phrase, accurately handling the word of truth. Now that little phrase, accurately handling the word of truth, is a phrase that comes out of Paul's work environment. Paul was a tent maker And one of the things you had to do if you were a tent maker when it came to cutting the tent material is that you need to cut it straight. If you don't cut the material straight, you've got a problem. And that's literally what it's saying here, that we need to be workmen who cut the word of truth straight. We are called to cut it straight. Now, I've done a a massive amount of research and reading, and and one of the things I've found is that there are some various that come out of parts of the emerging church movement, some very dubious and disconcerting statements that make me wonder, are we cutting it straight? For example, Doug Padgett, who is a pastor in Minneapolis, of all places, said this. He said, there was a time when I felt my ability to deliver sermons was a high calling, that I sought to refine. Those days are gone. Preaching doesn't work. That's an amazing statement. Look in 2 Timothy at uh, chapter 4 and verse 1 there. Notice that Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Doctrine is not a good thing. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. I just see a lot of dubious, disconcerting statements coming out of part of this movement. Another um, 
comment by Doug Paget. And remember, we talked last time about the value in some of the people in this movement of mystery and doubt and uncertainty. It's almost like doubt and uncertainty is a high value. And with that in, in, in background, Paget says this. Now remember, he is a pastor of a church. He says, I don't want to be my people's spiritual pace car. You know, in racing, a pace car just sort of sets the pace for the other cars. He says, I don't want to be my people's spiritual pace car. Now, is that cutting the truth straight? Turn with me to the left, to the book of Philippians, which we just studied as a, as a church body. Philippians chapter 3 and, and verse 17. Should the pastor, the shepherd of the sheep, be the spiritual pace car for his people? Well, notice in Philippians 3, 17, Paul says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. This is what we ought to do. Spiritual leaders should be setting the pace and the believers should be following. Again, in chapter 4 and verse 9, he says, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, (laughs) practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is a theme that goes on over and over again in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul said to those believers, Be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says to Timothy, Show yourself to be an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. There's just some of these dubious disconcerting statements that seem to come out of some inside the emerging church movement. Now, I want to share with you uh, a couple of quotes from Rob Bell. And Rob Bell is a pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he's written some materials. He's written a book called Velvet Elvis. And, And Rob Bell is very hard for me to figure out. I really struggle figuring out Rob Bell. Rob Bell is very engaging. He is very articulate. He is extremely passionate about reaching postmoderns. He cares highly about that. But he just bounces back and forth like a basketball to me. And to be frank, when I read Rob Bell, I think at times he simply talks off the top of his head. And whether he believes some of the things that he says or not, really at the core, I'm unsure. I'm trying to figure the guy out. Here's one of the things that he writes. He says this, the Bible is a collection of stories that teach us about what it looks like when God is at work through actual people. The Bible has the authority it does, here comes a key statement, only because it contains stories about people interacting with the God who has all authority. It only has authority because it contains certain stories of people interacting with God. And then he'll bounce off and he'll say this, when you take the Bible seriously, then we're taking God seriously. One statement you know you wonder about, and then he makes another statement that seems so strong. But I want you to understand something. When I read a statement like his there, that the Bible only has authority because it contains certain stories, that alarms me a little bit. 
because it echoes something that I remember learning a lot about when I was in seminary called neo-orthodoxy. I don't know if you've ever heard of neo-orthodoxy or not, but neo-orthodoxy is something that was promoted by what I call the B-boys, Bart, Bruner, and Bultmann, who were theologians who wrote. And here's what they said, basically. They said that the Bible is not the Word of God. It contains the Word of God. And what's in here becomes the Word of God when it speaks to you. Now, you have to think about what that statement means. It doesn't sound like much. But if this is not the Word of God, but it contains the Word of God, what that means is we have to get into the book and find out which parts are the Word of God and which parts aren't the Word of God because it's not all the Word of God. It just contains, the book does, the Word of God. But you see... The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible itself is the Word of God. It's not doesn't have biblical authority only because it contains some stories about people interacting with God. So I'm not quite sure where Rob Bell is coming from. He'll say statements like this. He says, our church stands for historic Orthodox Christianity. And then he'll turn around and he'll write a statement like this. The problem with continually insisting that one of the absolutes of the Christian faith must be a belief that Scripture alone is our guide, it sounds nice, but it's not true. When people say that all we need is the Bible, it is simply not true. Now, you understand where I'm coming from on this. I hear these dubious, disconcerting statements, and I have great concern over it. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a second now, just time out. I mean, why are you, why are you up there, and why, why do you even bother naming names, Bruce? I mean, why mention specific names of people? And, and maybe some of you might even be thinking, why do we really need to measure people's statements and people's teaching with the Scripture? And if you're thinking any of those thoughts, I, I just want to share an answer to those. First of all, the Apostle Paul himself named names of people. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he mentions by name, Hymenaeus and Philetus, he says, men who have gone astray from the truth. You know, there's just times in which it's important to identify people and not just talk about things in generalized terms. And not only that, but why do we need to measure people's statements with Scripture? Well, that is our responsibility. That's our responsibility as individuals, and that's our responsibility as a church. See, we are to cut it straight. It's very important that we do that. And as we stated last week, we are to be Bereans. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. When people say things, even the Apostle Paul, we are to get out the Scriptures and see whether these things are so. And Jesus himself commended churches for doing that. Measuring people's teachings by the Scriptures. And in fact, Jesus even confronted churches who failed to do that. 
Let's, let's look at a couple of illustrations of that. Go to the last book in the Bible, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, and turn to chapter 2. And we see here Jesus commending churches who measured teaching with Scripture and even made conclusions that that teaching did not match up with the Word of God. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. He says to the church at Ephesus, and by the way, I want to make this very clear. This church is not a perfect church. There is no perfect church. And if we were evaluated by the Lord Jesus, I'm sure that He would commend us for some things, and He would also tell us that we have weaknesses. And that's exactly what we see happening in the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And so to the church at Ephesus, which had its own weakness, he says this, though, by way of commending them in verse 2. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. You evaluate with Scripture. And then notice down in in verse 6, he says, this is something that you do have that I like, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans had a certain kind of teaching procedure that was out of bounds with the Word of God, and some of the things that the Nicolaitans did, and the church at Ephesus stood against those things. They were cutting it straight and said, that's not right. And then I want you to notice in chapter 2 in verse 20, here's a letter to the, the church at Thyatira, and he says this in verse 20, this is sort of the confronting by the Lord, he says, I have this against you as a church, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. You know, a prophetess would claim to speak for God. And she teaches and she leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and they eat things sacrificed to idols. And, and he's saying here to this church, you're not cutting it straight, folks. You're tolerating things that should not be tolerated. This whole idea of measuring statements with Scripture is something we're called to do as individuals and as a church. In fact, if you go with me to Titus, the book of Titus, which is right behind First and Second Timothy, Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, we're going to learn that this is a responsibility of a spiritual leader. This is a responsibility of a spiritual leader. And in Titus 1, we have qualifications given here for overseers, or if you would, for elders. And in verse 9, one of the things that elders or overseers are to do is to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, with the doctrine, so that he as a leader will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. See, that's part of the responsibility is that we ought to be able to teach what is sound doctrine, and also we ought to be able to refute doctrine that contradicts the Word of God. So when we're, when we're talking about what we're talking about in this series, we're just simply lining up with the Word of God. It's important that we do that. 
And so the first core concern that I have, that I I feel quite strongly about, that I see coming out of part of the emerging church movement is this dilution of divine truth. Now listen to this for a moment. When truth is mishandled, the second core concern that I have will soon follow. I guarantee it. And that second core concern is the distortion of the gospel. The distortion of the gospel. Now again, I want to be clear. I've been trying to be fair on this. Remember, the emerging church movement is on a great spectrum. Not everyone would teach some of the things that I'm going to be sharing with you. But I see a disturbing trend that comes out of part of the emerging church movement. And what I'm going to do in the next few moments is I'm going to give you a number of quotes And I want you to judge for yourself. Okay, you take on the job of cutting it straight, all right, as I share these quotes with you. And then we'll look at some Bible verses in connection with those quotes. Now, again, I'm going to go to Rob Bell, who um, made an interesting statement in Dallas when he was on the Gods Aren't Angry Tour. By the way, it's gods with a little g, the Gods Aren't Angry Tour. Here's what he said. He said, instead of offering himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of mankind, Jesus dies, he's talking about dying on the cross, to prove to the human race that God is not angry with them, and that he loves them pretty much as they are, and that there is no need to repent. Anyone who tells you that you need to repent is not talking about Christianity. I I look at that statement and I'm thinking, what did you just say? Instead of offering himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of mankind, he dies to prove that God is not angry with people and there is no need to repent. Anyone who tells you that you need to repent is not talking about Christianity. I mean, how does all that work? Do we not read our Bibles? I mean, in Acts 3.19, Peter says very clearly to the people to whom he was preaching, repent and return that your sins may be wiped away. There needs to be a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. When someone's going their own way, they need to turn around and look at who Christ is and what he's done and trust in that. Go with me to Acts chapter 20. Turn to Acts chapter 20. I want to look at a, another passage that, that brings up this whole idea of, of repentance. And chapter number 20. And verse 20. Paul is talking to the elders at the church at Ephesus, and he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And I I taught you publicly and from house to house. And here's what I was teaching, solemnly testifying, verse 21, to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what you want to tell a neighbor who doesn't know Christ, that there's no need to repent, there's no need for a change of mind that leads to a change of action? And what about this idea that he, he... 
didn't offer himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. I mean, can anything be more alarming than a statement like that? Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and chapter number 7. We want to look at several verses in Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 27. By the way, uh, Rob Bell sometimes complains that people take statements and then, you know, comment on those like that's not fair. I think it is fair. Now, if, you, if someone doesn't believe some of the things that they're saying, they need to change the things that they're saying. That's why I'm so confused. But notice Acts chapter 7, verse 27. He says, we have a high priest who does not need daily like the Old Testament high priest to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself, which is a theme, an ongoing theme in Hebrews. Look at chapter 9 and verse 12. It was not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then down in verse 28, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Chapter 10, verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I want to read you another series of quotes. This is where you begin to see what's happening to the gospel here. Rob Bell again. He wrote this, he said, Jesus at one point claimed to be the way, the truth, the life. Jesus was not making claims about one religion being better than all other religions. That completely misses the point. He was showing the best possible way for a person to live. Spencer Burke, who's a pastor in Southern California, Uh, He wrote a book called A Heretic's Guide to Eternity. He also has a website called theooze.com. This is what he writes. He says, when I say I'm a universalist, what I really mean is that I don't believe that you have to convert to any particular religion to find God. As I see it, God finds us. And it has nothing to do with subscribing to any particular religious view. And then Burke tells us, as a pastor of a very large church, what we need to do is we need to postmodernize our thinking. See, that's our problem. We need to postmodernize our thinking. And he says this, he says, Although the link between grace and sin has driven Christianity for centuries... It just doesn't resonate in our culture anymore. It repulses rather than attracts. People are becoming much less inclined to acknowledge themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. And the idea 
that he's talking about here is that Jesus is our example. And all humanity should aspire to be like him. And that's what's important. And Burke goes on to write, the God that I connect with does not assign humans to hell. And then Doug Paget, who I quoted from earlier, said this. He said, the gospel can be found in other world religions. Now, I want you to know, men and women, my blood starts to boil about now. This is what we're communicating to people? You know, you've heard me say many times that there are just two types of religious systems in the world. There's all other religious systems, and then there's biblical Christianity. Because all the other religious systems spell salvation the same. It's D-O. It's something that you have to do. Now, they may define the doing differently, but they say that's the way you come into a relationship with God. You must do something. You need to do enough good, however defined, that God would accept you. And biblical Christianity is different. It spells salvation done, D-O-N-E. It couldn't be more clear. It's as clear as it can be. All the other religious systems, there's something you need to do. Biblical Christianity says there's nothing that you can do to earn your way into a relationship with God, but it's been done for you by the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel can be found in other world religions. Look with me in the book of Acts at chapter 4, a familiar verse to many of us. But can it be more clearly stated? I don't really think so. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Acts 4 and verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. And what is the name? Jump up a couple of verses. It's Jesus Christ. That is the name because he is the one who came and bled and died for you and for me and for the world. The God that I connect with does not assign humans to hell. Oh, really? I mean, what? The Bible teaches very clearly that hell is a real place. And you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28? He says, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. But oh, people today, they don't want to hear about being sinners. They don't want to hear about hell. So we don't want to talk about those kinds of things. Okay, now... Are we influencing the culture or is the culture influencing us? You know, it doesn't surprise me that there would be some confusion about this idea of the need of Jesus Christ to die in our place, that there would be confusion about repentance, that there would be confusion about hell. It actually makes logical sense if you think there's not a sin issue. See, if you think there's not a sin issue that needs to be dealt with, 
then Jesus can just be our example to inspire everybody, every people group, every religion in the world. And that's exactly what you see coming out of some inside the emerging church movement. They reject the idea of the depravity of man. Steve Chalk, I think that's how you pronounce his name, it's Chalk with an E on the end, who's a pastor in England, he rejects the idea of original sin. That means that human beings are born with sin. And he says, Jesus, oh, Jesus believed in original goodness, not in original sin. And the statements get even more outrageous. Dave Tomlinson, who is another British pastor, identifies himself in the emerging church movement, says this regarding the total depravity of man. The total depravity of man, that theological doctrine simply says that sin has infected every part of us. There's no part of us that hasn't had sin infected. And he says regarding the total depravity of man, he says that is biblically questionable, extreme, and profoundly unhelpful. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages, what we earn from sin, is death. In fact, in Ephesians 2.1, Paul says to those believers, before you came to trust in the person of Christ, he says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. See, that's the problem that humanity faces. It's the problem that we faced. It's the problem everyone faces. And that's why it's so critical that the death of Christ on the cross be proclaimed. And I want you to understand, some of what I read goes from disconcerting to be, being entirely disturbing. In fact, you know, I, I've seldom seen some of the things coming out of the mouths of, of leaders of the church in America. It's just amazing to me. Brian McLaren, who is a pastor in Maryland, he wrote a book called Everything Must Change, and he was on the Everything Must Change tour, and he was in the Boise, Idaho area, and he had his Bible open to John 3.16, and here's, here's what he really taught. He says, for God so loved the world. What you need to understand is that the world can be translated the earth. And so when it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the idea really behind this verse is that he came to save the planet. He came to save the planet. He came to save the earth. Not the people on the earth, but the earth itself. And while they were at that conference on Friday night, he encouraged people at the end to come down to the front because down at the front, they had tubs of dirt. And what he said is, you need to come down here and put your hands into the tub of dirt and feel what needs to be saved. That, men and women, is radical heresy coming out of somebody's mouth. And what is really interesting to me is that 
among some inside the emerging church movement, it's not everybody, the idea of a substitutionary atonement that Christ stepped into our substitute role and died for us, they say the substitutionary atonement is distasteful. Brian McLaren said this, talking about substitutionary atonement. He says, that sounds like one more injustice in the cosmic equation. It sounds like child abuse, you know. You you said, what? That God the Father would send his son as our substitute sounds like child abuse? The culture wants to squeeze us into its mold. Men and women, the earth is destined to be destroyed. He didn't come to save the earth. Second Peter, if you want to turn with me, you can. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10 makes a very clear statement. This is the, the destiny of the earth itself. In chapter 3, verse 10, Peter says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. That's where the earth's going. Now, it doesn't mean we are to act irresponsibly. You know, Adam and Eve were to rule over the planet and to manage it, but we're not here to save the dirt. The Lord Jesus in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. It's the people who are lost. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. 1 John 4.10, God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means the total legal satisfaction and payment. That's why He came to this planet. Now, again, I've got to say this because people are going to misunderstand and misconstrue. Not everyone in the emerging church movement believes these things. Everybody got that clear? But there are recurring themes that come from some within the movement, and these things are incredibly serious. And Paul does not mince words. When it comes to the distortion of the gospel, turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. I want you to see Galatians chapter 1. Paul doesn't mess around. You start messing around with the gospel and substitutionary atonement, and you're in a bad way. Galatians 1, 6 says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is, this is an amazing statement, he is to be accursed. That's how strongly God feels about it. Accursed. They ought to proceed directly to hell and do not pass go. Because nothing gets more serious, men and women, than distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 3. We're just going to read a couple of passages as we get ready to close this morning. John chapter 3. Can it really get any more clear? Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved, rescued through Him. And he who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now I want to talk about, as we close today, some life response that we are to have, and it's going to take, involve two things. This is what we need to be about. Life response number one is we need to teach and we need to live the truth. We need to teach and live the truth the truth. And, and I might direct you here to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and chapter 4 again, verses 1 to 5 that we read earlier. Remember, it talks about how all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. And then you have these statements in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. You, know, this, you can't get any more serious statements than this. I charge you in the presence of God And of Christ Jesus, who's going to judge the living and the dead, and that includes you to whom I'm talking, and and by his appearing and by his kingdom, I'm swearing by these things, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, a time is going to come when they won't endure sound doctrine. And wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Men and women, that's what we need to be doing. We need to teach and we need to live the truth. And then the second thing we need to be doing is we need to protect and proclaim the gospel message. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us being saved, being rescued, it is the power of God. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Men and women, Jesus came to live a life that we couldn't, but he came to die a death that we deserved. That's what people need to hear. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity we have to fulfill the directions of your word, to be able to examine what is being taught today and to measure it by the word of God. And Father, I I just want to take a moment to talk to Jesus directly here and to say, Jesus, we thank you that you died for us. We thank you that you arose for us. And we thank you that you are coming again for us. And we would pray that we would celebrate that and communicate that to our generation for your honor and glory. Amen.